How is everyone? Good. It's good to be here. I want to talk to you this morning about a proven life. I want to talk to you about a proven life. And I want to begin by asking you a question. When you think of someone who has had a very solid, sound, relevant impact on your life, or when you think of someone that you may have had a brief encounter with and they left a very lasting impression, what is it that comes to your mind and stands out? One of the things that has defined us over the last few years as a family has been the fact that we've, of course, been engaged in ministry. And what that has meant for us from time to time has been that we've, we've moved around some, not only as a family, but I've personally moved around to different locations doing ministry. We've done some traveling overseas. And one of the great benefits of that has been that, man, we have had the opportunity to meet some good, sound, godly people. But it never fails. One of the things that always leaves an impression, it's not so much what a person says, but the people that have left lasting impressions in my life have been the people that have lived out a certain way. They've lived out biblical attributes very loudly. It's been people who have been living examples of the attributes of Jesus Christ. Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. Example is the only thing. Now, for the sake of clarity, I want to let you know what I'm not talking about. When when I use the phrase or I say things like the impact of somebody living out the Christian life versus what they say, let me make sure, for clarity's sake, that you understand what I am not saying. Because I'm not talking about evangelism. Because... There is no substitution whatsoever for the gospel to be clearly and verbally articulated. The the gospel being verbally articulated clearly, that is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not talking about evangelism. What I am talking about is a manner of life that defines the culture of our church. Now, what I believe that that ultimately means, or what I believe that it can mean, is that the power of a godly example can leave a lasting mark, guys, long after our sermons, and our posts, and our blogs, and our tweets, and our theses are gone away, that the lasting mark of an example, man, it can just impact. In December of 1999, myself and a few other guys, about nine of us, we made our first trip to India. We arrived in Hyderabad after about two days' worth of travel, and it wasn't long after we had been there that we dispersed into groups of two. Now, it was myself and another gentleman, and our guide was a was a man, an Indian, by the name of Edgar Sothalora. And with him, accompanying him, was a young man that He had just led to the Lord that he was in the process of discipling. He was a new convert. So we get in the car, we're going to our venues, and we've 
drove for hours and hours. We decide that we're going to pull off on the side of the road, get out, stretch, take a break, relax, talk. We did that. When it was time to get back into the car, Edgar sat down in the passenger seat. Myself and Tim are in the back, along with the new convert. Edgar sits in the passenger seat, goes to throw his legs in, and he realizes that he has stepped in a pile of, yes, manure. So he gets ready to get out of the car to try to get it off of his shoe, and before I knew it, the young man that he had discipled rushed to him, knelt down, pulled his handkerchief out of his pocket, and he began to clean the waste off of Edgar's shoe. And he seemed to be doing it with joy. So Edgar looks around and he relays to Tim and I, and he just, he just says simply this. He said, he loves me. He is thankful that I have been pouring my life into him, and he just wants to serve me. Now, a lot of things took place on that mission trip that kind of stand out, but even they are kind of vague memories. There will never be anything that will take the place of that godly example. I remember it to this day, and I'm certain that I'll remember it until the day that I die. So today, I want to talk to you about an exemplary life. I want to talk to you about a submitted life. I want to talk to you about a life dedicated to the gospel as we look at the life of Timothy as we open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. Paul says this to the Philippian church. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we we are so thankful, God. We have so many things to be thankful for, and we want to celebrate, God, your grace that is extended to us today. We want to celebrate the life that you lived. Christ, ultimately, the life that you lived that was the perfect example for us. So, Father, as we look at the life of another man, pray that you would use some truths from that life to encourage us, God, to convict us, to strengthen us, to awaken us, to enlighten us, to help us, God, 
to ultimately be more like you. Father, we need your help today. Father, we would ask that you would fill us with your spirit. That you would speak, that God, you would speak today. That you would bypass the the mind and the heart and the lips of a man, God. And that you would have your way among your people. And we pray that you would do these things for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you about a couple of principles briefly today. I want to talk to you first about serving as a son. And then I want to talk to you about living as an example. Serving as a son and living as an example. Let's look first at this thought of serving as a son. We read again in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul describes Timothy as a man who has proven worth. Timothy and Paul, they meet in Acts 16.1. Acts 16.3, Paul circumcises Timothy and we're immediately introduced to this man. And the reason that he did so was so that he would not be a stumbling block to the Jews. We're immediately introduced to the heart of a man who begins this companionship with Paul, and we see that he is dedicated to this other's mentality that we've been introduced to so far in the book of Philippians. He's sold out and he's given to this other's mindset, this lifestyle that suggests, I care so much more about your interests than I do my own interests. He says that Timothy is a man of proven worth. And that phrase, proven worth, it comes from one Greek word that means the testing of a person's character. We immediately, because of that definition, we immediately have some imagery in front. We have the picture of gold or silver or any other type of precious metal it's in a container of some time, some type, and it's overheat. And the heat is such that it breaks the metal down into a liquid form. And then what happens next is all of the impurities, they begin to come up to the surface of that liquid form or that liquid so that they can be stripped away from that liquid. And the only thing that remains is the purest of the metals. That's the imagery we, that we have. It's a picture of gold refined in fire. It's a picture of gold tested. It's a picture of gold purified. It's a picture of gold proved. It's the picture of a man that we can relate to. The temptation is to look at this lifestyle that Paul has been describing going back to the beginning of Philippians and to think that it is out of our grasp. That's the temptation. The temptation is Paul talks about being so consumed with others more so than you are with yourself. I, look, my heart agrees with that. My heart wants that. But I can't help but face the reality that sometimes it just seems like it's unattainable. We expect it of Christ. We know that the Son of Man came to serve 
and to not be served. And so we know that if God had the agenda of sending His Son, that God's going to see that agenda through. We expect it of Him. And then God does something wonderful when we're about ready to throw in the towel and say, I don't know if I can do it, God. He introduces us to a man. And He says of that man, this is a man of proven worth. Isn't that really what we all just simply want for our lives? I mean, listen, I have some dreams. I have some goals. I have a bucket list. Yeah, there's some things that I want to accomplish. But when it's all said and done at the end of the day, and it's just me and God, and I'm looking deep into the recesses of my heart, and I'm trying to figure out who I am, don't we really just want to know that our lives are proven before God? Don't we just want to know that our lives are proven worth before righteous, holy God? Don't we just want to know that God is pleased with our character? Don't we just want to know that God is pleased with our attitudes? Don't we really just want to know when it gets down to the nitty gritty and it's just us and God, don't we really want to know that God is pleased with our efforts? And I'm not talking about efforts in relation to our righteousness that we might could add to. No, efforts that just revolve around, God, I just want to know you. God, I just I just want to love you. So Paul, or perhaps better said, God, he's assuring us of something. He's assuring us that we can have that knowledge of ourselves. He's assuring us of that. Look at verse 22 again. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the Gospel. Listen, you know this. The word know that Paul uses, it's a completed knowledge. It's a completed knowing. You know that the sun's going to rise. You know that the sun's going to set. You know that the seasons are going to change. You know that God is eternal. You know that God is faithful. You know that Christ died and He's a perfect sacrifice for your sin. You know that with the complete knowledge. And along the same lines and that same complete knowledge, know that Timothy is a man of proven worth. You can know this. But we can know that we can begin to take that journey when, when we begin to live our lives as sons. Because a son is humble. A son is under authority. A son does not have his own rights to his own life. A son is under the influence of someone else. Thomas Brooks says that example is the most powerful rhetoric. Or Example is the most powerful language. Now, I agree with that idea wholeheartedly, but sadly enough, that isn't always my idea of Christian service. Example. Example is not always my idea of Christian service. I believe that we, and I'll speak for myself, I am very good at highlighting and verbalizing Christian duty. Oh, I'm so good at that. Ask my family. That's my daughters. That's my daughters at how good I am at sitting them down and going for long periods of time telling them how they should live their lives. 
I'm very good at explaining what Christian duty looks like. I'm very good at identifying what it is that we should do, how we should live in certain circumstances. But Thomas Brooks, it seems as if he is saying something completely different, completely opposite. It seems as if he is saying the greatest sphere of influence, the greatest sphere of persuasion, it's not found so much in the things that we're saying the things that we're trying to pass on informationally. It seems like what he is saying is the greatest form of persuasion is found in how we live. It's found in the example that we set. It's found <clears throat> It's found in the ordinary things. I think sometimes that we want to suggest that it's found in the extraordinary things. Well, Look at the decision that I'm making in relation to this big, gigantic ministry opportunity. I'm, I'm deciding to go to the world, deciding to go to the nations. Praise God. But I think that, I think that what's being said is proven worth can be seen in those little ordinary moments when I'm frustrated and my children are a little bit bothersome at the moment because I've had a long day. Slam the chair down real quick out of frustration. Those are the moments. Those are the ordinary moments that shape a man that lead him to those more extraordinary moments. Those are the moments where a man decides who he is in his heart that begin to shape him who he is long term, bigger picture, that determines if he becomes a son who will become a father. Because Paul's a father. Paul's a spiritual father investing. The first step for us, beloved, is we have to be sons. The greatest sphere of influence is not found so much in what we say, it's found in how we live, because we can honor Christ with our lips and our hearts be so far away. Faith without works is dead. What I, what I do it has to be accompanied with what I believe and what's going on here. And Paul serves us so well by taking this whole idea of example one step further. What type of example is it, Paul? What type of example is it that is so powerful? What type of example is it that contributes so much to the idea of proven worth? Notice that Paul does not define gospel service in terms of a relationship from a brother to a brother. He does not define gospel service in the terms of a relationship between a minister and a minister, or a teacher and a teacher, or a teacher and a student. He defines gospel service as the relationship that exists between a son and a father. Why? Because a son is submitted he submits himself to the rule of someone over him. Paul is doing so much more than highlighting the intimacy that exists between him and Timothy. He's doing so much more than that. He's encouraging the Philippian church that this man that he is sending, a man of proven worth, is of proven worth because he has first and he has foremost humbled himself as a good son does. And now, and only now, only as he humbles himself is he now ready 
to go and to serve others. Only then. Only then. God's calling us to be sons. God's calling us to be submitted. God's calling us to submit our dreams and our goals and our plans and our lives for His glory. He's calling us to be sons. And He's calling us to be sons among each other. Jesus Christ came as a son. Not only did He come as a son, but He went to great lengths to protect the value of the relationship and the role of a son. Notice that in John 5.19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. But only what He sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He's protecting the role of a Son. He's protecting the relationship of a Son. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. Nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Why? Why is Christ so emphatic about the reality that He and the Father are one? Why is He so emphatic about not doing anything outside of the will or the rule, or the governing agreement of the Father. Because this is an issue of unity. And the moment that the step, the Son steps outside of the Father's will, or the Father's instruction, it paints a picture that there's no longer unity. And Christ will not have that because this relationship that's being exemplified in our presence between Paul and Timothy, it's for the sake of the church. Paul is saying, Look at this relationship. Look at Timothy living and acting and moving and maneuvering and dwelling like a son. That's how you're to live. That's how Christ lived. That's the emphasis that, that Christ placed on this relationship. Christ is protecting the unity of the father-son relationship by doing nothing outside of the father's will. Let the world know I do nothing of myself. I live as a son. I love as a son. I submit as a son. And I will die as a son. Now, not only do we see in this passage, in this example of Timothy's life, not only do we see him serving as a son, but we also see him living as an example. Let's look at verse 21. We see Timothy living as an example. Verse 21. For they all seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In David Platt's book, Follow Me, 
Francis Chan writes the introduction, and he begins by talking about all of the things that he's doing right in the beginning of his ministry. Maybe a better way to say that is he begins talking about his ministry in the terms that it looked like success. He planted a mega church. I think it was about 5,000 plus strong. Authored books. Spoke at conferences. Yet in the midst of all of these things that would seem to suggest success, he goes on to talk about the fact that he was a man who was plagued with a lack of peace. He identifies why when he says this. He says, I was frustrated with my own inability to motivate people to structure their lives around disciple-making. I could fill a room and preach a sermon, but I couldn't figure out how to compel the people to leave that room and actually make disciples. I could generate excitement, but not urgency. I knew Jesus wanted more for His church, but I didn't know how to lead the people there. Looking back, I now see that part of the problem was my example. We all know it's difficult to teach our children something we are not modeling. I told people to make disciples while I spent my days dealing with problems and preparing sermons. I wanted the people to share their faith regularly even though I rarely did. I expected the church to live adventurously while I continued my routine. Francis Chan could fill a room, but he couldn't be an example. Francis Chan could fill an auditorium, but he couldn't be a father. He could fill a meeting hall, but he didn't have the disposition and the characteristics of a son, like Paul talks about that Timothy has, that is necessary for a church to be unified as they move forward. Paul says of Timothy in verse 20, I have no one like him. Now, in verse 21 of chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul states, the brothers that are with me Greet you. In other words, Paul is surrounded by believers. He has access to, he has fellowship with other Christians, yet out of all of the Christians that Paul has access to and fellowship with, there are none like Timothy. There's not one that stands out like Timothy. What stands out about Timothy? What's so special about Timothy? Well, what Paul, what Paul points out about Timothy is that everyone else is so concerned with their own interests. What that means is Timothy is not only not concerned with his own interests, he's consumed and bombarded with the interests of others. Now that word interest, it means things. What kind of things? All things. Now, my temptation is to care about your things if your things share an interest with my things. Okay? 
I have a tendency to really care about your things. Now, there was a time when I was so given to missions. If you didn't care about missions, you were missing out on what God was doing. Now, if you cared about mission things, I cared about your things. But that's not the case with, with Timothy. Timothy isn't this guy that's picking and choosing the things of the people of God that he's showing an interest in, or that he's caring about, or that he's nurturing them through, or that he's loving them through, or that he's shepherding them through. Paul is caring about all of the things of all of the people. He cares about financial things. He cares about relational things. He cares about problems in the church. He cares about problems in the home. He cares about problem among the husbands. He cares if they're serving their wives. He cares if the wives are being submissive or not to the husband. He cares about all things that relate to all people. He cares about things. <laughs> all things. Your things. My things. Paul says, I don't have anybody like this man. Among all the Christians and I'm surrounded, this church in Rome, so church in Rome, Paul's engaged with Christians, and he says, there's no one like him. Now that word like, it's from a Greek word that means kindred spirit. It means like-minded. It means like souls. It doesn't just mean that of all of the believers that I'm surrounded by, Paul is the one that stands out as the most selfless. It doesn't just mean that. Because that word like, it means that there is no one else that thinks the way that I think. This is Paul talking. And Paul is saying of Timothy, there is no one else that thinks the way that I'm thinking. There's no one else that acts the way that I act. There's no one else that loves the way that I love. There's no one else that gives the way that I give. There's no one else, no, no one else. <laughs> okay, let's try that again. There's no one else who cares about your things the way that Timothy cares about your things. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, I am sending to you the product of my example. I am sending to you the man that I have poured and dumped my life into. I am sending to you the man whose heart beats at the same rhythm and at the same pace as my heart beats in relation to the things of God and in relation to the gospel. Do you know what's happening with with Timothy because Timothy is such a faithful son? He's making a transition. He's transitioning from a son to a father. And Paul is saying, it is, it is such a great joy, Timothy, to hand and pass this baton off to you. And Philippians, it is my great joy and it is my great pleasure to send to you this man whose heart beats for you the very way that my heart beats for you. That's why it says in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the Gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him. For this reason, I send him to you. What's the reason? Because he has served with me first. 
as a son. He has served with me first as a man submitted to someone higher than himself. He is worthy to serve you. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head. We all know. We could probably all quote this about now. We say this ten times in the, at, at Wednesday in, in our small group. Let's try it together. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. We've spent so much time trying to figure out what this means, and it's been so joyful. As we've picked out nouns and verbs, and we're, we're tearing this, it's been awesome. We spent so much time trying to figure it out. And you know what we need to do to get a visual, to get an example? We need to look at Paul, who is advocating his son, spiritual son, and the love relationship that is existing between these two men that they're fighting to maintain. We know that they're not biological father, biological son. What are we talking about here? We're talking about two men who are striving to remain intimate together. Do you want to know how good and pleasant and what it really looks like when brothers dwell together in unity? Then look at Paul and Timothy. Look at them. Let's back up, if we would, to verse 1 of chapter 2 in Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. seems as if when Paul starts off talking here, there's there's some ifs involved. If this is the case with you, Philippians, then, then, then do this. But I think the example that Paul is setting and what he's saying in this letter to these people is this thing in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 that could maybe only be a possibility between us. It's already in existence between me and, me and Timothy. Paul is saying, look, look at the, look at the life, look at the example, look at our relationship. And one through five of chapter two comes to life. It has hands, it has feet, it has heart, 
has a mind, has names now. We look at this passage of Scripture and we wonder, God, is it possible? And we see in the lives of these men that not only is it possible, but it is something that we can accomplish as, as we humble ourselves as sons. This is the question to the people of God. Because what that means is that we are a people who first have to become sons. And I find it interesting the relationship that Paul and Timothy have because, you know what? <clears throat> Paul is going to hand this baton off to Timothy and Timothy is going to transition from a son to a father. But you know what? He always has to maintain that part of him that is submitted as a son. You know, it doesn't matter how God exalts us. It doesn't matter what God does. It doesn't matter the direction that God takes us in. We always have to be a people that are defined by this, this life that Jesus highlighted of being a son. We always have to be defined by that. Is that something that we want? Because I want to tell you right now, I believe that if we first humble ourselves as sons, guys, we are in the process and we are on the road to a unity that is probably a very rare thing. How do you feel about that? I ask you if you would to bow your heads with me. Paul said, Guys, if this is the case, make my joy complete. I, I, would, I would encourage us and I would ask of us because this is, this is an opportunity to make joy complete in each other's lives. This is an opportunity for us to live out this beautiful passage of Scripture. So as, as Jason plays, I just want to encourage you, and I want to ask you, and I want to, I want to plead with you to, to just take this as an opportunity. Guys, first and foremost, to, to explore your heart and just ask yourself before, Holy God, God, am I son? My son, my father, my slave, and my master. I'm pliable. Is my heart hardened? We we desire. We 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 ask God for this thing called unity that we've been talking about and praying over and exploring. It begins when we begin to live as sons. God, do that in us. Father, I so often need You to remind me of the necessity of becoming a little child again. I'm reminded of the disciples trying to push away the little children and You you're confronting them and rebuking them and telling them unless you become like they are, you don't have a place in the kingdom of God. God, we want a place. We want a place as a church. Not because we're looking to achieve anything outside of Your will, but God, we want to be where You are. We want to dwell where You dwell. We want to live where You live. We want to, we want to function where You are. We want, to, we want to follow You, God. So we're asking, we're begging, would You explore our hearts? Would You bring to, to our minds and to our hearts, God, reveal to us who we are, where we are, what we are. Oh, God, humble us that we would be adequate to kneel down in front of any other person in this building and serve them. 
oh God, change our hearts. That we would have the passion to want to kneel down and serve. The desire. God, that we would, that we would be like you. Who, who could have chosen any way and any means to present the gospel to a cold-hearted, wicked world. People hated you, running from darkness or running from the light into the darkness. You could have done anything. You could have presented the gospel and implemented the gospel any way that you desired. And your method for implementing the gospel was the Son of God humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Yeah, God, may we follow Your example. For Your glory alone, Presence in Jesus' name, amen. There in the newborn cry It's there in the light of every sunrise There in the shadows of this life Your gray It's there in the mountain top There in the everyday and the Monday There in the sorrow and the dancing Your great grace Oh, such grace From the creation to the cross There from the cross into eternity your grace finds me Yes, your grace finds me It's there on a wedding day There in the weeping by the graveside There in the very breath we breathe, your grace. Victory, your grace finds me. 
same for the saint and for the sinner. It's enough. Enough for this whole wide world. Your greatness, oh such glad that it is your relentless pursuit of us that finds us. God, it is your grace that keeps us believing. It's your love that draws us to you. And God, as we look to be sons, as we look to become fathers, it is your grace that will do these things in us. So we're breathing in your grace. And we're breathing out Your praise forever. May it be so, God. And may we know that through grace, by grace, we have all things in common. And we have what we need to submit ourselves one to another and to love and serve one another the way that we should. As we sit down to this meal together, God, may we know that it's grace. The food is grace. The fellowship is grace. The building that we're sitting in is grace. And may we care more about each other than we do about ourselves as we sit here and eat. We thank You for the food and we ask Your blessing on it, God, along with the rest of our day. May it be a glory and a joy to You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay and have lunch with us, guys.